Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, we deal with conflict, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world. We meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now try it for free and explore a starter series plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover collection. You may also want to check out our new meditation collections this year. Mindful eating, work, authentic leadership, and a special collection just for college students. There's also a new mindful work and sleep basics course. If you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new, pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. Today's guest is Brad Warner, founder of the Angel City Zen Center in Los Angeles, punk rocker, and author of several books on Zen Buddhism, including his most recent book, It Came From Beyond Zen. His books are based on the teachings of Dogen, a 13th century Zen master. Brad's earliest inspiration, however, actually came from the Beatles, who were avid meditators. Brad grew up asking questions all the time about the mysteries and meaning of life. His journey to Japan and his introduction to the teachings of Dogen and Zen Buddhism seemed to give him just the practical wisdom he was seeking. Dogen is known for being skeptical and quite often taught in contradictions, but this both inspired and spurred on a great curiosity and passion in Brad. And it has helped him with many of the questions that he's been asking about life since he was a young boy. Now, here's Brad. Brad, it is great to have you on Untangled today. I'm so happy to have you on our show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Your book is really original. I loved reading it. It's called It Came From Beyond Zen. And the book before that was called Don't Be a Jerk. Yep. So I think you've got some really original titles. So I want to get into some of the meat of that. And first I want to understand, because a lot of your teachings come from what you call the greatest Zen master of all time, Dogen. Yeah. How did you originally connect with Dogen and his teachings? I started getting interested in Dogen and interested in Zen in general when I was in my late teens, probably early 20s. I was then the bass player of a hardcore punk band. And the reason I got into that scene was because I thought it was very practical and direct and real. And people really had a commitment in the particular little scene I was part of to being ethical and being realistic about life in general. Mm -hmm. Not everybody lived up to their rhetoric about that, but at least they were trying. And I found that really nice because in the atmosphere that you're in in those ages, you don't find a lot of people who care about such things. And I cared about it. And these people did. So when I discovered Dogen, my first impression was that it was everything I liked about the 
hardcore punk scene only taken to its ultimate level. We weren't just questioning society and questioning rock and roll music, but even questioning ourselves and saying, Mm -hmm. well, just because I believe something, does that mean it's true? Just because I sense something, does that mean it's really there? It's really objectively out there? Things like that. I just found those questions really interesting because I look at life as being very mysterious. I remember being a kid and just thinking, what the hell is this? (laughs) While my other friends were sort of taking it for granted and trying to do with it what they could, it meaning life, I was just going, what the hell is this? Why am I even here? And I still, that's my driving passion is to understand that and to the extent that I am able to understand that to try to express it. And I felt like Dogen was doing that too, but he did it much better than I did. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny that you're saying that. I want to laugh because I always wonder why some of us grow up having all these questions. I was like that too. And I see it in my 11-year-old niece who's just asks all these really profound questions. And then there are all these other people that just are happy to be here. (laughs) They're not asking all those questions. And what is it? Why do you think that you were such a seeker from such an early age? Or do you think there's even a way to answer that question? Yeah, I don't know if there's a way to answer it. It might be, I was actually trying to write about that a little this morning, but it might be that certain people are just, you have an inclination. I don't even like the word talent because I think talent is, I don't know, overused. You look at the Beatles, I was thinking about them recently, and they're very, very good at writing the kinds of music and playing the kinds of music they, they did. And they were always at the top of their game when they were together. And they started out with that inclination from early childhood. So maybe this is just an inclination that certain people have and they follow and other people don't. I used to Mm -hmm. look down on people who didn't, but now I don't really look down on them. I just think, well, you don't have that inclination. And maybe there's something, you know, the way the Beatles presented us with something out of their natural inclinations that was useful to the rest of us. Maybe I can do that too, I hope. Yeah, well, you do in your books. And I think it's this deep, deep sense of curiosity. And it's a curiosity to me that you gravitated to this one teacher and and these are the teachings that you're sharing. So he must have really resonated with you. What Mm -hmm. are some of the more practical teachings that really struck you when you began reading, studying Dogen? (laughs) It is hard. I took this class called Zen Buddhism on a whim, and this is how I got into the thing. I was interested in meditation because I mentioned the Beatles, and I was a big fan of the Beatles, and they were into meditation. And I thought, oh, I'll look into meditation. The only thing I could find available for me to look at meditation was this class at the university I was at called Zen Buddhism. So I just signed up. So not expecting anything or not even knowing what to expect. And it just struck me as eminently practical. I think one of the first things that resonated with me is I'd been looking at other religions and other religions seemed to be terrified of science. They seem to be feel very threatened. We're talking about Ohio in the early 80s and the, was very conservative and And the versions of Christianity I encountered there were the kind that were afraid of admitting that evolution might be possible and stuff like that, which I just thought was stupid. But on the other hand, you would have people opposing that while going, well, evolution is true, so therefore all of spirituality is bunk, you know, is not true. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem right to me either. I don't think you can throw away everything about spirituality as an entire way of looking at life. 
so I was really interested in this religion. I don't really think of Buddhism as a religion so much anymore, but it's usually presented as a religion. So let's say it's a religion that is able to admit it might be wrong about some things, which I thought was great. The Heart Sutra is the foundational sutra in Zen Buddhism. And if you understand it, the Heart Sutra is a very short little sutra. It takes about, I don't know, three minutes to chant the whole thing. It's mostly a series of negatives, like know this, know that, know whatever. And it just kind of goes on for most of the middle portion with all these no's. But the no's are saying no to the foundational philosophy of Buddhism. The first thing Buddha is supposed to have said is there is the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. I know that sounds like a mouthful. But these are like the things that all Buddhists take as their foundational truths. And then you get the Heart Sutra that says no suffering, no origination, no stopping, no path. So it just denies the foundational principles of Buddhism. And I just thought, wow, here's a religion that has the guts or something, I don't know if that's the word for it, to question its own doctrines. And I thought, well, this is interesting. What religion, it gives you a doctrine and then says, yeah, you better question that doctrine that we just gave you. Well, that can be very confusing. Didn't that blow your mind when you first started realizing that? Yeah, it was confusing, but it was really exhilarating at the same time. So you don't really know what Zen Buddhists believe because there isn't really a belief system. There's certain common beliefs you might find if you polled a bunch of Zen Buddhists, but there isn't like a book somewhere or a guy somewhere who says, what we believe is this, 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 and this. And if you believe those things, you're a Zen Buddhist. And if you don't believe those things, you're not. There's nothing like that in Zen Buddhism. You are invited to test every belief you have in in every theory that even the Zen Buddhists put before you. You're told, figure out if this is true. It's for the ultimate skeptic, right? Um, In fact, you wrote a whole book called There Is No God and He Is Always With You, which was confusing to me also because Buddhists don't generally talk about God. You know, and I think of Buddhism more as a philosophy than a religion, but I was curious, what did you mean by that? There is no God and He is always with you. It's a phrase I heard from a Zen teacher. I didn't make that up, but it was a phrase that my first Zen teacher told me he'd heard from a guy he'd studied with briefly. And he said, there is no God and he's always with you. And to me, it sort of encapsulates the Buddhist idea of God, because it is fair to say on a certain level that Buddhism doesn't have a belief in God. You could say that it would be correct. On the other hand, Buddhism isn't atheism either. So it isn't an idea, which is where we tend to, in the West, think that those are the only two options. Either you believe in God or you're an atheist. And this is one of these contradictions you'll find in Dogen and some of the other great Zen writers and thinkers, is that they'll say, okay, there is God, but there isn't. So Buddhists, they never really had, there's no monotheistic tradition that Buddhists had to react to until really pretty much the 20th century when Buddhism and Christianity came in contact. Up until then, there had been so little contact between the two that the Buddhists never really grappled with this idea of God. But if you read things like Dogen, there are certain portions of Dogen where he seems to be talking about God, but not in the sense of a creator type of God, but more in the way God was conceived of by the early Christian mystics, who said you couldn't attribute anything to God, (laughs) but they still believed in God. There was an understanding that you and I and everybody in the listening audience has a kind of internal experience that we know to be real. 
So I'm hearing you go, "Mm," (laughs) and you're hearing me say silly things. And we're having this experience, and that experience is real. So we know that to be real, and we can't deny that. But we don't understand what that is. And one of the Buddhist ideas is that since we all share that, but they say that collectively this sort of experiential side is not an individual thing. It's not my consciousness. It is something that I as an individual partake of that is universal. And in that sense, a lot of people in the West would call that God. The idea of there's this universal, I don't like the word consciousness, but let's say consciousness. Right, okay. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So that would be the way it was thought of as sort of this universal consciousness, but not that there's a all-knowing, all-consuming God. I want to get into your newest book, It Came From Beyond Zen, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. And in your second chapter, like, there's lots of wisdom nuggets throughout the book. And I love that you share some of Dogen's stories, which is super helpful. And you say that he's always saying, try to focus on the meaning behind the words. Yeah. And that attitude is the key to everything. Can you talk a little bit about, when we talk about attitude, you in the book talk about a joyful mind, Mm -hmm. a nurturing mind, and a magnanimous mind. And is this what is meant by the attitude that you bring to everything? I wish I could remember the Japanese word that I use the word attitude to translate. Because a lot of people don't use that word, but I think it's a kind of an approach. So it's an attitude that is at once... It has what the Buddhists, or what my teacher at least, called the will to the truth. Or some people call it aspiration to enlightenment, but my teacher called it the will to the truth. Like the drive to understand the truth and the willingness to accept the truth when it becomes clear. And also an ethical, principled approach to just dealing with people and things. So these combined together would be the Buddhist attitude. It's the idea that I'm going to try to understand the truth as best I can and abide by it. And I'm going to try to treat the people and things, other things that I encounter with respect and in an ethical way. And you do the best you can with these things. And sometimes you fail, but you try it. And that's the attitude that I'm talking about. And does that include this sort of concept of ethical behavior? Oh, yeah. That's why the previous book to this one was called Don't Be a Jerk. There's a chapter of Dogen's in which is called Shoakumakusa. I can say that right off in Japanese because I had to do so many interviews about it. Mm. If you break down this chapter title, it means don't do various wrong things. And I looked at that chapter and I thought, well, all he's really saying in sort of a modern parlance would be don't be a jerk. You just It's not a specific list of things that are ethical and aren't ethical. It's sort of saying, you know, in a given situation, when you're facing a particular situation, you know, in the deep depths of your mind or somewhere, what's right to do. And just do that and don't do the things that go against that. And because we are all connected, that is actually the best way to be happy. It's not like you have to sacrifice your own happiness in order to be ethical, which is, I think, the way a lot of people tend to see it. It's not that you have to give up anything. Like the best way you can have a happy life for yourself is to be ethical. So why not do it? (laughs) Because anybody you do something crappy to is ultimately yourself. So don't do those things. Is that tied to karma or is that sort of a separate concept? Well, I mean, it is in a sense. The kind of simplistic way of understanding karma is everything that you do is going to come back to you. 
And that's a way to understand it. And it's not wrong. But it's also that doing something unethical or doing something hurtful to somebody else is actually a way of hurting yourself. And you might be able to numb yourself to the effects of what you're doing to others for a certain amount of time and to a certain degree, but it's always going to backfire and you're always going to know that you did the wrong thing. Even if you're not consciously able to acknowledge it, you'll know somewhere and that will eat at you and eventually cause you serious problems. Yes, because you can't choose not to remember those things. Yeah. And so if you want to be happy, just don't do those things. But <laughs> I mean, I laugh because it's hard for some people to struggle with this. Well, it's hard. I mean, I know there are ethically ambiguous situations, and you just navigate those as best you can. But mostly your situations aren't quite that ambiguous. Mostly you kind of know. We're going to take a little break here because we need to support our podcast and give it a little love from time to time. So this 30-second break, we'll give a shout-out to our sponsor, Yoga International. Yoga International offers a way to deepen your yoga practice by offering over 1,500 classes and workshops that you can take from the comfort of your home. Pretty cool. Whether you want to chill with restorative yoga, power up with some vinyasa classes, or explore a little kundalini, they've got it all. Super affordable and much more convenient than running out to a studio. And better yet, there's a special offer for Untangle listeners, a 30-day free trial plus an Essentials of Meditation course, normally a $99 value. You definitely want to check this out at yogainternational.com slash untangle. That's yogainternational.com slash untangle. Now, back to Brad. You also say in the book, everything that you do is a kind of meditation. And so I wanted to understand from you, I think in that context you were talking about how important it is to give whatever you're doing your full attention. How do you define meditation? And I want to also understand what your particular practice is. Yeah, that's the hard one because I tend to even shy away from the word meditation because it's been so overused and usually very goal-directed. So people meditate on attaining something, especially the people that read The Secret and stuff. They want to attain physical objects like cars and houses and things. Right. Uh, but there's even less tangible things that meditators want, like uh, peace of mind or enlightenment or compassion, you know, things that sound really good. But in Zen meditation, you remove all of those objects. So you just say, no, we're not meditating for anything, including peace of mind, including compassion. We're just not meditating on anything. We're just kind of sitting here to experience sitting here. And that's the type of meditation uh, that I do. And the idea of everything being a kind of meditation is sometimes I hate the way that's used as a cop-out for not meditating. People say, well, I don't need to sit down for 20 minutes a day. I'm, everything I do is meditation. I'm like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> but on the other hand, I try to approach everything I do in the same way that I approach Zazen, which means I try to give it my full attention and stay with that activity. Of course, sometimes you're going to get distracted and you're going to think of something else when you should be thinking of the thing you're looking at or whatever. And it can be easy to get wrapped up in that and think, oh, well, I've failed at meditating, so I might as well not do it anymore. But it's more that you understand that you might have had a momentary lapse and left the building a little bit, but then you come back to it and that's fine because it's going to happen. And so each time you float away a little bit, you pull back on the little string, you know, I'm imagining a balloon, right? 
you pull back on the string and bring it back and go, okay, no, we're not floating off that way right now. We're going to stay here with this thing and then float, 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 and you come back. And that's okay. That's part of the process. Eventually, that's how you get good at it. Although I kind of reject that idea of getting good at meditation. Yeah, even yeah. meditating at all means you're already way ahead of the game. You write about self-awareness. And I think that's one of the benefits that comes from a meditation practice. And I like kind of what you were talking about, how we're transformed by our self-awareness, or maybe Dogen was saying that, and how that in and of itself helps us with our negative urges. How does that work? Is it just in having that witness mind or that self-awareness that we begin to recognize our negative urges and be able to make better choices for ourselves? Or is there something else that Dogen talks about? This frustrates a lot of people about Dogen, but he really doesn't give you like any exercises to do to become a better person or anything like that. It's more the idea that once you start to clearly recognize the less ethical things you do, the less you'll want to do them. It's almost like you become embarrassed by them. Like, oh God, I don't want to do that anymore because that was so stupid. And noticing that is really powerful, but it's also really difficult. You can't give people a kind of ethical training and say, well, don't do this and don't do that. And we have the Buddhist precepts, which are a list of things that you try to avoid doing. Killing, stealing, lying, and things like that are included in the Buddhist precepts. This is one thing I also found fascinating about the Buddhists, especially in the Zen stream, is they don't really try to define those precepts very much. The one I wrote another whole book about is one called, the one that's usually phrased, don't misuse sexuality. And you go, well, what the, <laughs> what does that mean? But you try not to violate your ethical understanding at any given moment in any given situation. And how you realize what to do and what not to do is very complex and it differs from person to person. And it might even be that if two people did pretty much the same thing. One might be doing something ethical and the other might not. So it changes according to the person in the situation. It's more a sense of watching yourself and watching how certain activities make you feel because you could kind of feel when you're going wrong. You develop a certain amount of sensitivity over time with practice that gets better and better, I think, as you work with it. I don't think it's ever perfect. There's so much more we could say about that, but I have a couple of other questions I want to ask you as well, which yeah. is he talks about, this is so interesting because he's not prescriptive as you're saying, and there's a lot of contradictions, but then there are these like nuggets that everybody can relate to that just sort of pop out of his teachings. Like why is everyday life a miracle? And the, the quote is something like, but if you sit quietly for long enough and watch your real life unfold naturally, it starts to dawn on you that it actually is a miracle. And yeah. that's a very positive way to look at the world. That's something everybody, I think, can relate to. And it's sort of universal. It's interesting to me that I was, because I'm sort of a depressive character by nature, and probably for the first third of my life or whatever, I don't know how many years, I really didn't see life as a miracle. I saw life as kind of terrible and like, why was I ever born into this horrible world and this kind of, you know, it was one of those. Yeah. And I can still slide into that very easily. But I also learned to look at it going, well, like this minute I'm alive. And that's pretty weird because I'm alive and I'm a human being and I'm having a conversation with you and there's all sorts of things going on that are, when you take a few steps back from it, you go, this is really improbable. 
And I think you can look at your own life that way. You can go, okay, well, this seems like what I characterize as a mundane experience. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty incredible. It really is. I mean, if you look at life through that lens, you can really get blown away by the, the everyday miracles. Has your study of Dogen over the last, how many years have you been, I mean, you have so many books just based on his teachings, basically. How many years have you been studying him? I mean, 30 some years. Has your study of Dogen helped your depression or is it your meditation practice itself? Well, both, I would say. That both have been useful. When I was a teenager and living under my parents, nobody really took my depressive episodes that seriously, I think because I had, there were other problems going on with the family, which I don't want to go into. But once I got out, I was still experiencing it, but I never could afford to get clinically diagnosed. But my self-diagnosis is, I think if I'd gone to a, a psychiatrist during my 20s, I would certainly have been medicated because I was suicidal and everything mm -hmm. else. So it was really serious stuff. And I just learned the, the meditation kind of helped in the sense that I could take a step back from it. And you're supposed to sit with whatever is actually going on at this moment. And so I would sit with depression all the time. And instead of fighting against it, I learned to kind of go, okay, well, here's the situation right now. This is the time I'm very depressed. And look where it came from and see that even though I might invent reasons for my depression and believe those reasons, those aren't necessarily true. And I just learned to regard my depression as sort of a physical thing, like getting a cold or something. Mm -hmm. You just get one and then you rest for a while until it's over. And I sort of uh, approach my depressive episodes, which still happen sometimes, in that way. I just kind of go, okay, well, I just got to wait this out and it'll be over at some point. And it always and, has been, you know. And it sounds like you've learned to really take care of yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's important to do and you can't really do much. And what seemed to work is just more allowing the sensation to be there and not necessarily identifying with it. And then this, I guess, would be where Dogen comes in because he suggests that it's not useful to identify with this idea of self too much. Well, you don't get too attached to that moment. So when you're in a depressive state, you don't attach to it. So maybe that helps you not go deeper and deeper and deeper. Same yeah. thing when you're in a super joyful state, yeah. you don't get too elated because you know that that state will change as well. And that's kind of the secret because I think a lot of people want to have the happy, joyful, elated state all the time, and that becomes their goal, and you can't do it. And if you want to learn to be able to let go of the depressive, sad sides of life, you have to be able to also let go of the good ones right? well, and not cling to those either, because clinging to the good parts of life is what makes you depressed in the first place. So if you stop clinging and just let the happy times happen when they happen and let the sad times happen when they happen and just kind of move through all of it, then you can you just be better all around. Speaking of being better, Dogen says, you're perfect just as you are. Mm -hmm. And then he also talks about striving to be a better person. There's a kind of famous quote by a contemporary Zen teacher who's since passed away, and he supposedly said something like, you're perfect exactly as you are, but you could use a little improvement. Oh, right. I've heard that. That's yeah. a funny one. And that's kind of the attitude. It's sort of like there is no God and he is always with you. Your situation or you as you are right now is exactly as it is, and it doesn't really need anything. 
but you can always improve it. Even though those seem contradictory, they're not really. When you're actually right in the midst of things, you can hold both of those. You can say, I'm exactly as I should be. And yet, you know, I could do a little better. <laughs> Have you ever wanted to study anyone else? I mean, 30 years of studying this dude, and it seems like you're still learning from him. But are there any other Zen masters or other masters that you've thought about studying? There are, and I do look into a lot of other sorts of teachings, but I just feel like this one, I don't know, it's sort of a weird belief I have is that the right thing will present itself to you. And I think I may have had that idea even before I encountered Buddhism, and I don't know where I would have gotten that from. But I feel like life sort of presents you what you need, and Dogen was the person, or the philosophy, I suppose, that was there when I first got involved in this, and I thought, well, this one looks good. I feel like Dogen represents something more universal. Well, if people were going to read one of your books, which would you recommend? What's the most practical if people just want to get started with Brad Warner's practical advice from Dogen? I always think that the latest book is the best, you know, so I, I want to recommend it came from Beyond Zen, but I also know from watching over the years that my first book, Hardcore Zen, seems to be the one that sells the best. And it's really kind of a good starter kit for everything else. Brad, thank you so much for being on Untangle. I'm so happy you were able to make the time and to share some of the wisdom nuggets from your books. Thank you for having me. I always really appreciate a chance to talk about this stuff. Thanks so much to Brad for being our guest today. You can order his books at all major booksellers. For more information on him, check out hardcorezen.info. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.